0: We are back into the book of Acts. Uh, it has been since Christmas Eve that I have preached. That's a long break for me, and even farther since I've uh, been able to open up the book of Acts and go through it with you. So I look forward to doing that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. My notes tell me that it is a birthday for Joyce Waninger. Right, Joyce? Happy birthday to Joyce today. And Amber, how is your mother? Is she still sort of in critical shape? She's doing better. She's out, of ICU. out of ICU, so thank the Lord for that. Some of you have been in prayer for Tacey Hopper this week as well. She is out of the hospital, back to her home in Stallstown. and uh, Jake and Judy Jacobs have done a good job keeping in touch with her and watching after her, as has her son Luke. At the start of a new year, and I know we're 10 days into it now, but I had planned this message for last week, so at the start of a new year, one does well to take stock of where one has been, not only in the previous year, but in years past. Where have you come from? What has been the journey? Where now are you heading, and what has shaped your life to make you who you are today at roughly the start of 2021. As I engage in that exercise, I am filled with gratitude for the life-shaping influences that my Lord has graciously put into my path. Forty-one years ago, He joined me in marriage to Beth Proctor, and she has certainly been a very positive influence in my life. The woman who influenced me most otherwise would be my mother, who would have turned 99 in December uh, were she still with us. And then I, then I think of the, the men. Certainly, Jesus, of course, gets credit for it all as my sovereign, my Savior, my Lord, my ultimate example. But who else or whom else? The man I call my spiritual father is Jimmy Young, pastor now in Germantown, Tennessee, whom I met when I was 18 years of age in Ocala, Florida, and he became a model of spiritual vigor for me, of informed and godly passion. And he taught me, he encouraged me, he reproved me, he was the man that married me to Beth, he baptized our oldest two kids, huge influence in my life, no doubt. Well, after him... huh? The other man who has most influenced my life, I believe, is the subject of our study today in the book of Acts and for the next Sunday as well. His story is most extraordinary. So in Acts chapter 6, the early church in Jerusalem has elected seven men to a position of leadership. The name of one of them is Stephen. Stephen, any Stephens here today? we got a few Stephens among us, I am sure. Acts chapter 6 verse 6, these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And then in verse 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen. Can't debate with him. Let's slander him. They said, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point. Everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. His face became as bright as an angel's. How bright is an angel's face? Our daughter Sharon asked me that question before Christmas. She said, Dad, what exactly do angels look like? Uh, how, How human do they appear? And I said, apparently, from reading Scripture, they sort of look like Humans, at times in Scripture, people think that they're seeing a human when they see an angel, but apparently they typically appear with a certain heavenly brightness about them that is both wonderful and frightening. In March, some of us will show up at church, and, uh, and we'll see friends at church that we haven't seen in a while, and we will know from the glow on their face that person has been in Florida. <laughs> uh, yeah. They just came back from Florida. Some will look sort of like, <laughs> sort of like, they're glowing, right, in, in a way. Apparently, angels freshly down from heaven are still glowing from the radiance of God. St- Stephen was so radiant in the spirit. That he appeared angelic to his accusers. Now, if you think that his heavenly countenance endeared him to the non-Christian world, you would be mistaken. Sometimes I am admonished as a pastor to evaluate what the world thinks of our church as if that might provide a reliable metric for how we are doing in our mission. Not so. It's interesting, it's it's worth asking and evaluating. We do care about our reputation in the community, but the church, at its best, is often despised by worldly powers, even when she is most pleasing to her Lord. So Stephen, he's a Christian hero. Some of you here are named after him for good reason, Acts chapter 7. It's mostly a 52-verse sermon by Stephen followed by a rock shower that ended his life. But oddly Stephen is not the great influencer in my life. That man gets introduced at the end of chapter 7. You read verse 58 where it says, the angry mob dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. End of story for Stephen. Start of the story for Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1 Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And then a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. (coughs) He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. That is my hero. Yes, there's Nero, there's Diocletian, there's Bloody Mary, there's Hitler and Stalin and Mao, and before them all there was Saul of Tarsus. His story gets picked up again at the start of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them both men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. Okay then, this is our introduction to Saul. This is the man... That God has used so mightily in my life, and He is presented to us as the most evil, Christ-hating man on the planet. And I love that. I love that. Now, now my wife did not grow up uh, in a particularly Christian family. She came to faith toward the end of her high school years. Jimmy Young, my spiritual father, did not grow up in a distinctly Christian family. He came to faith as a young salesman in South Florida through the revival at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church there. But neither Jimmy nor Beth were ever hostile to the church. Saul was. Saul was. Saul apparently was a guy who was 100% in to whatever gripped his heart heart, for good and for bad. This is the man whose story dominates the last half of the book of Acts. Next Sunday, we will dive into the story of his transformation, which is found beginning at Acts chapter 9. It is just mind-blowing. It is extraordinary. I can't wait for next Sunday, but for today, in the time we have, I want us to ponder the implications of what and who Saul was before he became the apostle Paul. Who was he? (laughs) Let's work our our way through an acrostic using his Christian name. In Acts 13, he starts going by the name of Paul instead of Saul. and, And we are not told why that that happened. Nothing like the name change from Jacob to Israel, or Simon to Peter. No explanation as to why this went on, but our hero just started going by the name Paul. Our acrostic using his name then is this. The P stands for, say it with me, persecutor. The A stands for antagonistic. The U stands for unbeliever. The L stands for learned. Now, you can hang these terms on those four hooks, P-A-U-L, persecutor, antagonistic, unbeliever, learning. The first two obviously go together. Persecutor was not just his vocation, it was his passion. He was animated from within. He hated the Jesus movement, as we saw in verse nine, 1 of chapter 9. He was uttering threats with every breath and was eager, eager. To kill the Lord's followers. My, oh my. As passionate as some believers can be about advancing the fame of Jesus. Paul Saul was just as passionate in the opposite direction. This is the world in which you and I live. Some there are who will hate what you love. And some there are who will love what you hate. Saul was a big time hater. Listen to his own testimony, chapter 26, verse 9. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could do to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Wow, can you imagine This is some incredible opposition. Now you have to ask, where does this come from? Did Saul have a therapist, and what did they talk about? What was going on? Well, we should probably look at the rest of our acrostic to help us understand, and at Paul's background. What we know of Paul is that he grew up in the city of Tarsus. This is way, way east of Jerusalem in what is now present-day Turkey. He was born there. He lived there for some time until he was shipped off by his parents to Jerusalem to become a devout Jewish scholar. Indications are that his father, Saul's father, was a serious Jew who was also, curiously, a Roman citizen. That was a rare combination. The Roman citizen status would become quite important later in the book of Acts when Paul has run ins with the law many times. For example, when we read this story in Acts chapter 22, Paul is in Jerusalem. He's doing his thing, he's stirring up trouble by means of the gospel. His opponents are incited to a riot, which attracted the Roman authorities. A Roman commander had Paul chained up and then he interrogated him, which Paul loved. <laughs> Paul loved being dragged before the councils and asked to explain himself because it gave him a chance to tell people about Jesus one more time. A few minutes into his testimony, the Jewish leaders, they just go berserk demanding that the Romans kill him just as they demanded that the Roman authorities kill our Lord. So this commander brought Paul inside to torture the truth out of him. And then we read this, Acts 22:25. when they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who has not even been tried? And when the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it costs me plenty. And Paul answered, But I am a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard that he was a Roman citizen, and the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. His Romanness then saved his life more than once, and where did Paul's life end? You know that? Where did his story end? Well, it ended in Rome, and he was in Rome because, in the midst of various accusations, he eventually appealed to the Supreme Court of the Roman world, which unfortunately happened to be an emperor named Nero. Back to his story, chapter 22 and verse 3, Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did. So at some point in his development he's off to Jerusalem where he studied in the top boarding school in the land in the school of the famous professor Gamaliel. Gamaliel had already made an appearance in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, where Luke wrote that Gamaliel was a Pharisee and a teacher who was respected by all. And Saul, Saul, oh he may very well have been his prize student. He would have mastered the Old Testament Scriptures and the traditions of the strict sect of the Pharisee, who were the fundamentalist, if you will, of the Jewish world. This is, uh, by the way, explains the fourth letter in our acrostic. Remember our acrostic? P-A-U-L. Paul is what? Learned. He is learned. That's our L. He knew multiple languages. He was familiar with the ancient texts, both Jewish and Greek, but especially the Scriptures. So this man, Saul, is an uber Jew, supremely Jewish. He speaks in Philippians of how he was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says he was careful to obey all of the law. And here in his testimony in Acts 22, he notes that he was zealous to honor God. Zealous to honor God. That's a good thing, right? You're supposed to say, yes, it's a good thing, right? Yes, zeal is good, yes, wait, (laughs) certainly it is, but, but, ever seen misguided zeal? Very recently, right? It can get ugly, can't it? Nobody learned this like Saul. In Romans 10, Paul came to write this about the Jews of his day. Romans 10, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a, what? Zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is destructive. When someone believes that he is right and is sure God is on his side, watch out! In that person's mind, by opposing him, you're doing what? You're opposing God. And almost anything then can be justified to stop you. Blaise Pascal wrote this, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. That perfectly describes the zeal of Saul, perfectly. After speaking of his zeal for God's honor he says this, 22-4, I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. I received letters from them to our Jewish brethren in Damascus authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. So this is the outlook Saul's zeal took. For some, you see, zeal means building orphanages. For others, zeal means blowing those orphanages up. It may mean beheading infidels. For Saul, it meant trying to kill the church of Jesus in its infancy. Wow. Read it again. This time Acts 26, verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest... But also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. One more verse. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them to foreign cities. He was exceedingly conscientious, wasn't he? He believed that this was his calling. And, and you know, we are told... We're told in life, and you young people know about this, you're told in life to find your passion, right? And then follow that into your career. Saul did that. He became the most vehement opponent of Christ on earth. Zeal misdirected, to say the least. In Acts 9, when God tells Ananias to go meet up with Saul and to help him out, Ananias felt that he had to fill the Lord in on just who this guy was that he was sending him to. This was the Christian hater supreme who had been deputized by the high council in Jerusalem to arrest the lovers of Jesus. And after his conversion, no church wanted to host him because they were terrified of him and justifiably skeptical. And I think this is so tremendously funny. God is so, so awesome that He picked this guy, He picked this guy, just blows my mind. So Saul somehow becomes one of the greatest positive influences in my life and in many of yours. Which takes us back to our acrostic, sorry we sort of ran down some rabbit trails. The P is for persecutor. The A is for antagonistic, because he was so viscerally passionate about his persecuting. We have spoken of his being learned. That's our L word. The U is for unbeliever, which is pretty obvious, of course. This is why he was an antagonistic persecutor. He truly, he sincerely believed that Jesus was a fraud, that Jesus was a phony Messiah. Next week we get to enjoy the story of how that changed, rather, no, not rather, very dramatically and very instantaneously when he had a close encounter of the Jesus kind. The old Paul became the new Paul. He went from being a persecuting antagonistic unbeliever to a preacher and apostle an uncompromising lover of Jesus and of the church. It's okay to say amen at this point. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You see how that works? Preacher, apostle, uncompromising, loving. So you got eight points to remember before you... Leave the day. You see, can't wait for next time because we're going to wrap up the day. Next week we look at the transformation. Today we uh, wrap up with two applications of just what we've seen about Saul of Tarsus. First notice that God's calling of a person fits his design and his preparation of that person. In Galatians, Paul says that God chose him for his role before he was born. So God's hand was on him all the time with a view to what he would become. What had God appointed Saul to do? Well, several things. First, he was a writer of a great bit of the New Testament, right? His background as a scholar prepared him perfectly to serve the Lord in that role. Secondly, and related to that, he was a defender of the faith. He was equipped by God through his training to present the gospel in a biblical and reasoned fashion to defend the Christian message against all comers and attackers. Thirdly, God prepared him to be the leader, a leader of the church. Clearly, that was in this man's DNA. Before his conversion, he was leading persecution teams on hunt and destroy missions. He had, before he was the apostle, he had a following. This guy was wired in such a way that he would always have a following, a natural born leader. God made him that way, and then he consecrated those gifts for the advance of the gospel. Fourthly, God prepared him to suffer. Wow. We will learn just how much he got to suffer. It was really something. But even before meeting Christ, Saul demonstrated an extraordinary fearlessness. This guy was no People pleaser. No, not at all. He was willing to make all the church his enemy. And after meeting Christ, he was willing to make all the world his enemy. The meeting of Jesus transformed this man. But what the Holy Spirit did was to take who he was, refine and redirect what was useful. Eliminate what was not and give him everything he needed to honor Christ by his life and ultimately by his death. So hey, this is awesome, awesome stuff. Secondly and finally, consider that God's grace is so amazing that he goes after the most hostile, the most lost, the least likely, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He said, I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Yet more, Ephesians 3.8, to me the very least of all saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He says, I am the least of the apostles. <laughs> he says, I am the least of all the saints, but he was the leader in one category at least. What was that? First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I, I am the worst of them all. What a braggart. <laughs> he is the leading sinner. The King James Version calls him what? The chief. The chief of sinners. So then, you don't despair of anyone. You don't despair of anyone, you pray and you bear witness. No one still breathing is beyond hope. Not you, not a wayward child of yours, not the world's most flagrant atheist or jihadist Jesus can save such as these, and sometimes He does, and the world can only marvel. John Newton was a case in point. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Brooke, we should sing that, so get your team up here, and we'll do that, and as they come up, let's speak to God in prayer. Father, we do declare that your grace is amazing and wonderful, and Lord, even though Paul claims to be the chief of sinners, we know that if he's worse than us, it was very little difference. Even those of us that have come to faith at an early age in life, oh God, we recognize that our hearts are prone to wonder, and Lord, we feel it. We have all been prodigals to some extent or another. Most of us have been older brothers, despising those who came late into the family. Lord, we are a mess. We're a mess. We thank you that in you there's hope for us. Thank you that in you there's hope for others that we look out and love and long to see come to Jesus. We pray that you would do a wonderful work in these days to draw someone infamous into your family and make them a voice and a witness for the grace of Christ. (laughs) We think now of those we know that seem so far beyond the pale, seem like very unlikely candidates to ever bow the knee to King Jesus. We pray, O God, you work in even these. Those that seem very hard, those that seem quite hostile, melt their hearts and draw them to yourself. And Lord, we exalt we ex- today in the grace of Jesus and desire that that may be the central, greatest, most significant reality in our lives. Lord, in these days of confused situations... This night of a restless remorse when the heart and the soul of a nation lays wounded and cold as a corpse. From the grave of the innocent Adam comes a song bringing joy to the sad. All your cries have been heard and the ransom has been paid up in full. And so God, because of that, we would be glad in you on this day. Amen.